This is Marcus Slayton and Amy Owen with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says the University of Wisconsin system won't receive $32 million intended for workforce programs unless it eliminates diversity and equity programs. This comes after Governor Evers vetoed the provision eliminating DEI positions with the UW system from the budget yesterday. But Evers could not veto the legislature's $32 million holdout. The additional funding, which would keep the system's budget flat for the next two years, would need to be approved by Republican-led Joint Finance Committee. Rock Voss also vowed to reintroduce the $3.5 billion income tax plan vetoed by Governor Evers, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. The Assembly Speaker's plan would have reduced taxes for all income brackets, while the governor's veto got rid of tax cuts for the two highest income brackets and kept the reductions for the rest. Two photographers are suing Kenosha police over injuries suffered during police protests in 2020. The freelance photographers say they were shot with rubber bullets and sprayed with chemical agents while covering a protest two days after the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings. The Associated Press reports that the two were hired by the New York Times and Getty Images, respectively. The police are being accused of using excessive force. More specifically, the lawsuit names Kenosha County Sheriff David Beth, former police chief Daniel Miskinnis, and 10 other unnamed sheriff's deputies and police officers as defendants. The state health department will hold three public listening sessions to determine how to use $15 million from a multi-state settlement with Juul. Juul is an e-cigarette company that will pay off the settlement over the next five to 10 years to reverse the harm caused by nicotine vapes. The DHS says that they will take recommendations through an online survey. Wisconsinites can register and attend the sessions virtually on the Tobacco Prevention and Control Program webpage. The deadline for the survey is August 16th. A plan to remove a dam on the Yahara River in the city of Stoughton has some neighbors upstream worried, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. They're concerned that the removal will lower water levels north of the city, particularly in the Yahara River Bay. That change could be detrimental to recreational activities in and around the bay and also could hurt waterfront property values, they say. A group called Friends of Yahara Bay has collected almost 2,000 signatures on a petition that calls on the city to halt the dam removal plan. The city wants to develop a whitewater feature and other recreational facilities downstream. City Parks Director Dan Glenn says numerous studies have shown that dam removal would have a minimal impact on water levels in the bay. Passengers on a roller coaster in Crandon had their smiles turned upside down when the ride stalled, leaving them hanging inverted for several hours. The thrill ride, known as the Fireball, flickered out on Sunday during the Forest County Festival, WKOW reports. The Crandon Fire Department does not have a ladder tall enough to reach the stranded riders, so rescue equipment had to be trucked in from Antigo, about 38 miles away. Passengers remain suspended in the cars for two to three hours, according to CNN. All return to Earth safely. The Madison Metropolitan School District has named Carletra Stanford as their newest assistant superintendent. She has previously served as an associate superintendent of elementary schools, principal of Mendota Elementary, and many other roles in the district. 
Madison 365 reports that she's received the Luminera Award for Leadership for Equity and Excellence, the Milt McPike Education Award, and the Lois Gad Outstanding Alumni Award. And now, on to today's top stories. During the early 1900s, beaver populations were driven to near extinction in Wisconsin due to overtrapping. But thanks to conservation efforts, beavers were brought back from the brink and now can be found across the entire state. But the state's beaver population could again be at risk. At least that's what a Wisconsin-based conservation group says. They warn that current state and federal beaver management policies are threatening the beaver population. And now they're threatening to sue over it. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. A Milwaukee-based environmental organization has filed an intent to sue both the state and federal government over their beaver management practices in Wisconsin. Superior Bioconservancy is a nonprofit environmental organization working to protect water systems in the Great Lakes region. They say that Wisconsin's decade-old beaver management plan is outdated and unnecessarily kills thousands of beavers every year. And Superior Bioconservancy is threatening to sue the government agency that carries out that program, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services Division. The DNR works with the Federal Wildlife Services to implement that beaver management plan. They say the plan protects hundreds of miles of trout streams throughout the state. When the beavers create their dams, that can lead to flooding, eroding the banks of those streams. That flooding can also spill out onto roadways, highways, and other man-made structures near the stream. Since the plan was adopted a decade ago, Wildlife Services has killed over 28,000 beavers throughout the state and have destroyed nearly 15,000 beaver dams. In 2022 alone, Wildlife Services killed nearly 3,500 beavers. That's three times what Wildlife Services estimated they would kill in a single year in their original report, says Hannah Malachy with Superior Bioconservancy. She says that Wildlife Services is killing so many beavers because the science they use to justify those killings is outdated. We can highlight new information, such as multiple studies that have come out since 2013, showing the benefit that beaver provide to watersheds, to flood reduction, um, to to biodiversity, to trout habitat, all of these different features um, that have been highlighted since 2013 to ask them to reassess how their damage program is negatively impacting the environment and take action from there to change it. Superior Bioconservancy submitted their petition to sue two weeks ago. They're asking the state and feds to create an updated environmental impact statement for their beaver management plan. They're also calling for the immediate end to all non-emergency beaver and dam removals until there's a new beaver management program. Included in their petition is a 70-page review of the DNR's beaver management plan, highlighting over 100 studies published in the past decade showing the benefits of beavers. Malachy says that beavers are actually vital to preventing flooding. As contradictory as that sounds, because people think of beaver creating flooding, they can also improve water storage. So when we have huge flooding events across the Midwest here because of bigger climate change issues um, and increased storm intensity due to climate change, beaver are going to be our really 
our biggest proponent in protecting against huge flooding events into communities. There have been studies, for example, our boss, Bob Boucher, did a study here in the Milwaukee River watershed and found that putting beaver back at 52 sites could reduce peak flood flow by 37 percent, which is huge. The exact impacts that Wildlife Service's beaver killing have had on beaver populations isn't well known, in part because the DNR hasn't done a population survey in nearly a decade. And while, yes, beavers are a rodent, which are known for their high reproduction rate, Malachy says that isn't the case with beavers. Beaver usually have around four kit per year, um, and they don't start breeding until they're about two years old. So their reproduction rate can be pretty slow, and not having this beaver population count and continuing to engage in widespread trapping can actually put their put their population at risk. Superior has tried to work with the DNR on updating their beaver management plan, Malachy says, but she says that every time they present them with research showing the benefits of beavers, they get shut down. Ultimately, she says that both Superior and the DNR and Wildlife Services have the same goal, protecting our waterways and managing a healthy beaver population. We're just holding them accountable for the things that they've said that they're going to do and the things that they said that they're not going to do, um, and just asking them to reassess how that they're negatively impacting the environment um, through their actions. Superior isn't saying that wildlife services shouldn't kill any beavers, Malachy says, and that they understand the importance of wildlife management. She says that at the end of the day, she wants wildlife services and the DNR to think of new ways to manage the state's beaver population. We're not a no-trapping organization. We just want to promote better science to see how we can coexist with beaver um, in ways and reduce the amount of lethal trapping happening that's unnecessary and promote non-lethal methods like flow devices or culvert protections or tree wrappings and things like that that people can utilize to keep beaver on the landscape and still have their interests protected. Ben Goldfarb is an environmental journalist and author of the award-winning book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. In 2021, he told WORT that Wisconsin is one of many states with flawed beaver management programs. Certainly every state and really many European countries as well, um, you know, have their own their own kind of flawed approaches. So California actually considered beavers non-native um, for, for a very long time. And that was just, you know, because essentially, you know, trappers in California wiped out beavers so early uh, that when, you know, the first biologists and naturalists showed up, you know, they didn't see any beavers. And they basically concluded that there hadn't been beavers there historically. Uh, and that that blind spot kind of got enshrined as, as official policy. So, you know, there are all kinds of beaver myths that, that uh, you know, the international beaver community has to contend with over the years. And, and uh, you know, the Wisconsin approach is just one of many. The Wisconsin DNR did not respond to WORT's request for comment on their beaver management plan by Air time. Superior Bioconservancy only filed an intent to sue, meaning that the DNR and Wildlife Services have 60 days to respond before the case reaches the courts. If they take no action before August 21st, then Superior will be able to file their lawsuit where it will be assigned to a federal court. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Luckyhout. Beaver was announced last week after more than a decade of research, and it promises to shake up astrophysics itself. At play are very long gravitational waves, so-called ripples in the fabric of space-time, generated by collisions in space. First postulated more than a century ago, scientists are just beginning to understand how gravitational waves work. 
The latest measurement of some of these waves, measurement that depended on the geometry of the Milky Way itself, was announced last Thursday. For more on why scientists are really, really excited about this discovery, WORT reporter Madison Delia has more. Scientists say that they have been able to, for the very first time, measure the background sounds or the chorus of space. Even saying that they can hear gravitational waves, scientists say that this discovery is opening a new window of the universe and challenging what we already know about space. But what does that mean for us here on Earth? I'm on the line with Dr. Sebastian Hines, an astronomy professor at UW-Madison, to answer those questions. What exactly is it that scientists have actually discovered? That space actually vibrates and that you can um, send waves through space-time itself. Um, but that was... Um, those those waves were detectable by gravitational wave detectors on Earth, sort of the size of maybe uh, a state or you know sort of smaller than that. Um, what we have now um, uh, discovered as as, uh, as scientists are waves that are much much larger, longer wavelengths, much much lower in frequency um, that cannot be detected just by a gravitational wave detector on Earth itself. Um, these waves are so large, they, their wavelengths are so large, the frequencies are so so long that um, we have to use the galaxy itself essentially as our telescope. Uh, and so uh, what has been able to be discovered now is, is that space vibrates constantly with uh, sort of a, an overlapping chorus of gravitational waves sent out by different pairs of black holes orbiting each other across the universe. And these black holes are much, much different. They're many, many orders of magnitude larger, more massive than the black holes that we were able to see merge with the first gravitational wave discoveries, you know, roughly seven years ago. And so these are very different uh, gravitational waves and sort of their characteristics. But ultimately, it's the same underlying physical phenomenon, the fact that space-time itself rings. And that's very, very exciting. And this allows us now to test some very fundamental predictions about how the cosmos and the structure in the cosmos that we observe today, that we are part of, uh, formed and evolved. That's really interesting. Does this challenge or completely disprove any other theories people have had in the past few years? Uh, no, no. In fact, it, it really kind of confirms most of the expectations um, that we've had. Um, there were hints that this discovery was um, sort of uh, about to happen. Um, you know, these these observations took 15 years and longer really to put together. And the way that that works is actually really phenomenal. Um, and we can maybe talk about that too, um, because it is really almost mind-blowing the way that these, these new gravitational waves, waves were discovered. Um, but we know that gravitational waves exist, and we know that, or at least we expect that black holes um, that we know exist in the center of galaxies sometimes merge. And when they merge, they should emit... Um, they should send out these waves. And so we expected there to be this, this chorus, this, this background of gravitational waves from all the different mergers of black holes in galaxies near and, near and far, um, but we didn't know at what level. And so there were some theories that predicted weaker and um, some stronger signals. And, and so this relatively strong signal um, at least allows us to, um, to rule out some of the theories that, that you know, expected sort of a, a smaller signal from maybe smaller black holes or fewer black hole mergers. And that's very important because it tells us something about um, the way that black holes finally sort of collide with each other. Um, and, that's, and that's sort of at the heart of understanding where these gigantic black holes come from that we find in the centers of galaxies like our own. 
Um, and so that, that's, that's really where the fundamental science, um, other than just confirming Einstein's predictions, um, sits. And what do you feel like to the average yeah, everyday listener? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why does it matter, right? Why, yeah. why do we care? So this, this is, um, you know, we, this is one of the sort of steps that we've taken in the last decade or so towards what we call multi-messenger astronomy. And so for the longest time, I mean, astronomy is known as the oldest science, right? We've been looking at the stars probably throughout human history, uh, wondering about the, you know, what, what, what is it that we're looking at? What, what are we seeing and how, how do we fit in? And we've been, you know, starting with what our eyes could see. And then over the last century or, or so, really, we've been able to expand our, our sensitivity beyond just our eyes. Um, we've been able to listen to radio waves. Uh, we observed uh, x-rays from space. But all of that is still what we call electromagnetic radiation, things that, that we can understand with classical physics. But over the last um, 10 years or so, we've really expanded our ability to study the universe into two completely new era, uh, areas. One is gravitational waves. So this is using something that is not electromagnetic radiation, but just a property of space-time itself predicted by Einstein to study the cosmos. And then we've also started using neutrinos as non-light messengers. And this is something that Wisconsin, um, UW-Madison in particular, is very well known for as well. And so we have these two new completely new messengers, these new windows into the universe, and we're just starting to explore them and seeing this new technique um, finally come to fruition after such a long lead up is fantastic. And, and frankly, the, the way that these waves are detected itself is, is, is hard to believe. What we, what, what's being used to find these gravitational waves are the most accurate clocks in the universe. Um, we call them pulsars. And these pulsars are neutron stars, um, the collapsed cores of massive stars more massive than the sun itself, shrunk to roughly the size of Madison, you know, 10 kilometers across, at the density of nuclear matter. Um, these are some of the most extreme objects other than black holes themselves. Um, and so these pulsars, um, they rotate, and we know their rotation rates, and, and that makes them, and they emit pulses at a very predictable frequency, and that makes them in incredibly accurate clocks. And, um, and one way to measure the properties of space-time, so this fabric of space and time woven together is to position clocks in different places and watch how they slow slow down and spin up as space contracts and, um, and expands. And this is exactly what's been, what's been done here. Uh, and this is a painstaking process to look at these dozens of pulsars over many, many years and see how the slowing and speeding up of, of their ticks uh, is correlated and how that uh, tells us that there are these gravitational waves that pass over us all the time. Honestly, I've felt like I've learned a lot in the span of a very short period of time. And thank you for that, Nolan. I had an easy time understanding it. And as much as I'm loving our conversation about this very specific topic, just, just for the sake of curiosity, besides this very specific topic, what else do you study in your day-to-day? Yeah, so I, I do love uh, studying black holes, um, and so I, my interest lies at the intersection of what happens around black holes and how they affect um, what we call the large-scale structure, the galaxies they live in and the clusters of galaxies, so that's my specialty. Uh, and another thing that I'm really, really interested in is to study um, what we call X-ray dust echoes, um, which tell us something about the properties of dust when very large and bright X-ray bursts scatter off of dust grains in our galaxy and it allows us to study the properties of our galaxies and, and the dust inside it that is ultimately 
um, that, that forms the building blocks for things like planets. Um, so astronomy is this really wide and interesting field, and you know you have to know something of everything, and everything is sort of a little bit connected. And this is true for the discovery of these gravitational waves as well. Okay, thank you so much. Um, before I let you. you go, do you have any final thoughts on the subject you would like to share? Um, I think you know this is is a really often been described as the golden age of astronomy because. Um, you know, A, of course, we have these two new messengers, and they're, we're just scratching the surface. The next decades will be phenomenally exciting um, with lots of mind-bending, literally, new discoveries to be expected. And then we have, you know, a range of fantastic new telescopes that are coming online, starting with uh, James Webb Telescope, of course, but, um, but other telescopes, uh, ground-based and space-based, that really are going to expand our ability to study the cosmos. So it is really an exciting time, and um, it's great that, um, that, you, you know, that you're providing the service for people to, to follow along. And you know, the best thing as a scientist really is for me to um, share that science and to share our excitement with, uh, with everybody else. Okay, thank you so much. I've been talking with Dr. Sebastian Hines, a professor at astronomy at UW for the recent discovery, allowing scientists to hear the gravitational waves of space. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my co-host, Amy Owen. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, WORT contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom, Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to chat about government transparency. This week on Transparency Talk, they took a look at how Wisconsin's open record laws apply to school disciplinary records. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this Thursday? Hey, Jonah, enjoying the summer. I am too. I'm getting a little tan, going out in the sunshine. Speaking of sunshine, transparency, segue. Uh, we're talking about surveillance videos and disciplinary issues from schools today. So let's go ahead and jump in here. Uh, exactly what records, what disciplinary records can we get from schools? It can be difficult, but it is certainly an area of public interest. I am getting more and more calls and emails about this particular topic, and there are conflicting interests at play here. So the public wants to know what's happening in taxpayer-funded schools. You know, how bad are the behavioral problems? What kind of measures are schools actually taking to try to improve things and protect the safety of children? So that's on one side, and you know, parents especially want to know what's going on in their kids' schools. And oftentimes I get calls from parents saying, well, we know that there were police called to our school and the administrators won't tell us anything about what's happening. We have no idea if it was a gun, a fight, a threat. We have no idea and we want to know. And it's difficult. Uh, there are interests on the other side of this. You know, the people involved typically are minors. And in our society, we've generally had... 
uh, a lot of extra consideration for the privacy of minors. And that's the case even in criminal court. And when, when children get involved in the, uh, in the court system, even criminal cases, unless they're being charged as adults, uh, their records are ge- generally kept secret and they're not identified. And, and also, of course, these are schools, so education records do come into play. Those have special protection as well. So let's talk a little bit more about the special protections that students get under Wisconsin's open record rules. You have to start with FERPA. This is the federal law, the the Family Educational Rights Protection Act. This comes from 1974, and doing some research into it, you you learn that there's kind of this ongoing trend of abuses and misuses of school records. They would get shared with government officials who had no real use for them, or the records would, cons- would, would contain, you know, insulting comments or inaccurate information in them. And parents would often get frustrated because there was no way to challenge these things. So when FERPA was written, it, it kind of had two pur- purposes. And the primary purpose was actually to make sure that schools couldn't hide their records from children, from students and their parents, because that was a big problem. So the big part of FERPA is students and their parents have a right to access student records. But there was a secondary purpose too, and that was to prevent this kind of abusive release of information. So that's mostly what we're looking at here. And and so generally under FERPA, schools are prohibited from releasing education records to non-students or parents without their consent. And an education record under FERPA, it's defined as a record that's directly related to a student and maintained by a school. And there are many, many exceptions to that, uh, to that prohibition on release. Most of them are for sharing between specific government agencies. So for, for example, for discipline referrals, law enforcement can look at school records, uh, health services organizations, organizations can look at school records. And Wisconsin's law uh, is not identical to FERPA, but it's very similar. It tends to be a little bit broader because instead of saying directly related to a student, it just says related to a student. So it may have a broader scope. So let's take a hypothetical situation here. Let's say there's a fight in the hallways of my hypothetical child's hypothetical school. And there's hypothetical surveillance video of this fight. Am I entitled to that surveillance video or does that sort of fall in a, a gray zone or is it sort of blocked out from the, the records laws? It's a little bit gray right now. So the first question you got to ask is, is this an education record? Does it fall under the statute's definition? And for a surveillance video, probably. If it shows students in it, uh, at least, especially under Wisconsin's law, that's going to be related to a student. Although uh, there is some guidance under federal law saying that if a video focuses on action between one or more students, they're the subjects of that record. But people in the background, students in the background, aren't necessarily in focus or, or the subject of that record. But if we're looking at Wisconsin specifically, it's probably a pupil record. But Wisconsin's open records law, we should know, has redaction requirements. And the law says that if a record contains information you can release and information you can't release, you're supposed to redact the record and and remove that information and release the rest. So there was a big case back in the 2000s called Osborne versus Board of Regents that specifically said just because something is a pupil record doesn't mean that uh, it shouldn't get released. If, if uh, The court said it should get released in redacted form, and that wasn't 
creating a new record or that wasn't uh, breaking the, the the Wisconsin version of FERPA. They have to do that. So I, I've always taken the position that with surveillance videos, you've got to blur out the faces, but really you should be releasing those under under the pure open records law and FERPA analysis. But because lawyers like to gray things up quite a bit, there's still <laughs> the balancing test. You still have to get to that. And you see lots of arguments from schools about why they shouldn't release these under the balancing test. They talk about general privacy rights of students, and they often, too, talk about safety and security. You know, we, our cameras are hidden, and we don't want, to know, don't want people to know where they are because then they'll be able to find places that aren't covered by the cameras. Or the video shows our security protocols in the event of serious threats to danger, and we don't want to share those because somebody could find out the weaknesses of them. I think in general, a lot of those arguments are pretty weak, but they are things that are currently being fought over right now. So we don't have a clear answer. And then what about things like specific disciplinary records? Like if, there, if there's a write-up of that student's behavior. Those get harder because they are very specifically focused on one student. And even if you, you know, redacted their identities, it still might be plausible to, to figure out who the student is uh, if it's not known already. All right. Well, we've come to the end of our time for this week's episode. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. Always a pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. So ask for those those, uh, surveillance videos and see what they say. With the coming of July comes the true heat of Wisconsin summers. And while our rivers are already running low, yesterday's rainfall brought some much-needed relief. On today's Fishy Business, Pat Hansberg talks with Nate Wiggyhout about what to expect for fishing during the dog days of summer. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hansberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. And Pat, the dog days of summer that are officially here. I didn't know that they had an exact start date, but I guess it was Monday. Uh, but that the, basically what that means is it's it's going to be hot now. And we're now that we are in July, it's really officially for me summer season. June is is nice and all, but once you get into July, that's when the heat starts. That's when summer's really here. So looking at you know with all this heat and stuff and this summer weather here, what can we expect for just overall in july what's what sort of the norm for fishing well it, it's kind of species dependent but i'd say generally fish are looking for cool water so you, you have fish like bluegills that look for deeper water and they'll suspend like out on lake monona they'll suspend out over 60 70 feet of water but they'll be just 15 feet down they like to find that what's called the thermocline, which is where the hot water on the top kind of meets the cold water on the bottom. That's kind of that sweet spot. And that's where you'll find a lot of bluegills this time of year. Uh, bass and walleye, smallmouth bass and walleye um, tend to hang out at near steep breaks and mid-lake humps where they can, you know, in, in the evenings, they can go up to the shallow water when it's cooler and, and feed up there. But then when the heat of the day comes on, they can retreat down to a little bit of deeper water where they're comfortable. Um, largemouth bass generally hang out shallow all year, um, so they they kind of remain shallow. So if you're a shore angler, you can, you know, still got a lot of good opportunities for largemouth bass. And not all the bluegill uh, suspend out over deep water either, so there's still some decent opportunities for bluegill up shallow. 
Me and the bluegill feel the exact same way. Once it gets hot, go and find where it's not hot, essentially. Uh, so yeah, looking exactly. looking, looking at the uh, area waters here, let's start off with Mendota. What's been happening over there? Well, uh, the bluegills are finishing up spawning just now. It's actually kind of late for that to, uh, for them to still be uh, spawning. I do. I have heard a couple of reports of some uh, fish still with eggs in them, uh, but for the most part, the bluegills are done spawning on Mendota, and they'll start. They've started to move out a little bit deeper to that 10 to 15 feet of water on weed lines. Um, the Mendota bluegills don't seem to suspend like the Monona ones do, so they'll just kind of hang out near weed edges most of the rest of the summer. Uh, the, the big news, uh, I guess, is that the perch are starting to bite. So if you can find a, a hard uh, weed, weed edge, a very defined weed edge, and fish right on that weed edge uh, seems to be the places where folks are starting to pick up fish. But generally, uh, you know, Mendota has a great per- perch population, so that bite should continue to improve through the rest of the summer here. Uh, walleye and bass are up on mid-lake humps, and there's just a ton of pike in Mendota too. So a lot of good fishing to be had. Now let's move over. You mentioned Monona there. What's happening there? Well, uh, like, like I said, the, the bluegills are off their beds on Monona. They've moved out to that 10 to 15 feet of water. Generally, they can be caught on the bottom uh, or near the bottom. Uh, but as things warm up here, as we move into summer, uh, those bluegills will start to suspend out over deep water. And it's actually a really simple and relaxing way to fish for them is to just drift out over the deep water, provided it's not too windy and you can just sort of float along there and you'll just kind of stumble upon large schools of bluegill and generally they're about 15 feet down so you know you just hold the line right over the the side of the boat and and wait for a tug and let's move over to lake wingra what's happening on wingra well wingra is just a bluegill factory as far as uh, small bluegills so if you got uh, little kids and you want to keep them busy that's my go-to spot for keeping little kids busy. There's just tons of panfish very willing to bite a, a small jig with a piece of worm or a, a spike or waxworm on it. Um, of course, in there is also uh, some very nice largemouth bass and smaller ones too, But and the musky population in there is pretty good. I don't hear about a lot of true giants coming out of there, and when I say that, I mean like fish in the 50-inch range. But you, you do hear about fish in that 30- to 40-inch range coming out of there pretty regular. So Winger's a, a cool little lake for sure. Now let's move south a little bit and look at Wabisa. What's been happening on the uh, Wabisa area? Uh, you know, Wabisa's been uh, a lot like Monona, so the bluegills are starting to move out a little deeper. They have a good walleye population down there. Uh, Babcock Park areas, Hog Island up near Lake Farm Park are all good areas to look for walleyes. Uh, and the muskie population down on uh, Wabisa is also good, so I've, I've been hearing about a few fish coming out of there on the muskie side of things. And you know what, Pat? We're not even going to touch on Kiganza today. I, I, I can I can sort of assume. I, you know what? Let it, let's touch on it for just a second. Hear anything coming out of Kiganza? Well, actually, you might be surprised. I have heard some good reports recently. Uh, the water down there apparently very clear. Uh, weed edges have been uh, very productive for some really nice bluegills, and also along the state park side of the lake there. Uh, out near the breaks, there have been uh, folks catching some nice walleyes out there trolling. So, uh, yeah, for a change, I've been hearing some good reports out of Kiganza. Of course, that's the week that we, I almost skip Kiganza. But it's nice that we're finally hearing something out of there. That was sort of our, our forever uh, not much happening lake. So it's good to hear that there's stuff happening there. 
Uh, let's move over now to take a look at some rivers in the area. Now, we were talking just before recording here. I went out. Uh, I was in the Sugar River for a little while. I was looking for, for northerns or something like that. And I, honestly, the because of the lack of rain that we've got, it was so, so shallow. And now hopefully the rain that we got yesterday sort of evens that out a little bit. But what have you been hearing anything coming out of any of the uh, area rivers? Well, you know, uh, if you can find a dam, that's probably your best chance to find fish. Um, so catfish like to back up at dams this time of year. They got the fish like that oxygenated water that's flowing through their good current. Uh, you know, if you think about it from a fish's perspective, you know, where there's good current and, and everything's kind of churned up, that's basically like a, you know, just a, a pipeline of food coming right past them all day long. So they can just chill out and, and snag whatever comes past them. So Dams are going to be probably your best bet. The small creeks and, and, and things around uh, Dane County have been also uh, pretty low and clear, but uh, the trout have been in a good mood. I just want to make sure you watch stream temperatures because once that water gets a little too warm, over, over 67 degrees, they say, give those trout a break because they can um, suffer from uh, stress, too much stress from being caught in that warm water. But, um, yeah, fishing on area rivers has been great, albeit, you know, uh, some low water conditions but you know like on the wisconsin river it, that actually can concentrate the fish in a lot of the deeper holes because you don't have so much surface area to, to cover you know you just go to where there's water and there's likely going to be fish there all right we're going to have to wrap it up here for today pat but just before we go any final fishing advice that you want to get out there for people well you know wear your sunblock stay hydrated and you know just get out and and enjoy the summer while it lasts because you know it, before we know it we're going to be Back in the cold stuff. Pat Hasberg, thank you so much for talking with me this week. Remember, you can hear Update of Fishing Report anytime that you want just by calling one simple, easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there. Thanks so much, Nate. You too. A win on Saturday night versus last place Central Valley Fuego could see forward Madison jump into first place in the USL League One standings for the second time this season. Having recently set a club record four-game win streak, the Flamingos currently sit in third place and will be looking to bounce back after last weekend's loss in Greenville, Alabama. All that and more on this installment of Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial, and welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC and soccer culture-themed magazine, New Dog Mazine. Joining me as always is NDZ editor and producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. He'll be handling the recap of the last three matches for the Flamingos, filling in for Forward Madison FC's Director of Public Relations, Evan Warwick, who's taking a well-deserved break this week. The last time we left you, FMFC were riding a two-game winning streak following their massive victory in the Henny Derby in Richmond. With a recap of what was next for the Flamingos, Andrew, take it away.
a daunting three-match stretch to face FMFC with the potential of creating the longest winning streak in club history. The first match occurred back on June 22nd when the Flamingos hosted Lexington SC at Bree Stevens Field for the first time ever. Forward got off to a flying start in the first half thanks to goals from defender Jacob Kroll and attacker Nazim Bartman. Lexington pulled a goal back in the 38th minute, but FMFC's Christian Cheney restored the two-goal advantage a couple of minutes later, right before halftime. A second-half red card and subsequent Lexington goal made the later parts of the game a bit nervy for Flamingos fans, but the pink and blue got the job done 3-2. A road trip was next for forward Madison, traveling down to South Georgia for a date with Tormenta. The match was played evenly by both sides, with not many chances to speak of. The deciding factor of the match ended up being a Nazim Bartman goal in the first half off of a beautiful assist by Stephen Payne. The 1-0 win propelled the Flamingos into first place in USL League One and solidified a new club record four-match win streak. That brings us to this past Saturday's matchup against Greenville Triumph on the road. A questionable penalty call went against the Flamingos in the first half, ended up being enough for the Greenville side to prevail against a red-hot FMFC squad. As we sit today, the Flamingos hold on to second place in USL League One with just over three months of the season yet still to play. Even if results have been up and down, attendance for home games has been exceptional, most recently drawing over 4,600 spectators through the gates at Bree Stevens on a Thursday night. When asked about Madison's fan support, striker Christian Cheney had this to say. Man, I love it. It's part of the reason why I wanted to come to this club. You know, I wanted to be in a place where you do get this, where you do have a 12th man on the field, you know, because these guys, these people out here, they, from what I see, is the best that I've had, you know. It's the best that I've had in the USL Championship, the best that I've had even in the USL League One. And it catapults us, it helps us, especially every save, every shot, every good touch, every tackle, they're yelling, they're behind us. And I mean, come on, like 4,000 fans, man. Like it's, anybody could be doing anything and be pumped off that. So I just like, it's just, it's a blessing to be able to play the game and have all these fans come out and week in and week out. It's just, that's another reason why I feel like we can't stop at home. Why we go down a man, we go up a goal, we go down a goal, we just keep going, you know, and these and they help us out to do that. We go now to Oleg for fan reaction on the Lexington, Tormenta, and Greenville games. Madison versus Lexington. What a great game. You know, it just shows the beauty of football. This is what, what football is all about. A big score, a big victory, big emotions, amazing goals on, on both sides, actually. The first two goals for our team, I believe they showed a tremendous technical side for each individual players because in order to score those goals, it just takes this this technique. And it seems like our team has the Spanish flair to it. It's the same visual satisfaction as from watching ballet. Absolutely amazing. And so I'm hoping that it will continue for the rest of the season. Versus Tormenta, the game was really exciting and really scary at the same time. We have played a really good first half where we have scored a goal. Really good goal by Bartman. As I've said before, he is a very important player up top for us. Linking up with, with Cheney, I think this is what gives him a lot of openings and a lot of stability up front to make consistent scoring chances. The second half, however, was... 
very stressful. Whatever the coach have told their players to do, it have clearly worked. But I was very skeptical of of us going on defense so early in the second half. Usually, you know, teams play somewhat equal and, you know, try to have chances and have the possession of the ball until about the 80th minute or so or 75th minute. And it seems like after five minutes of playing in the second half, we just sat back and gave the ball to Tormenta and just tried to defend. I guess it worked, but it was very scary to watch to watch the game. So I'm glad to hear that. I'm just glad that our team have won. Now, forward versus triumph. That was a very even game. I feel like the score does not reflect what was going on on the field. We were playing very even neck to neck it seems like the first half was very stable for both sides we were just very unlucky with this penalty i don't know i'm not the referee and i know that the handball rules they change like from year to year and really nobody knows what the rules for for handballs are but it's a very 50 50 kind of call because Payne was so close to the person who was kicking the ball that he had no chance to react but it did hit the hand so fair play on that and also important to remember that we have started this game with basically our second squad so a lot of our important and contributing players they were benched for you know, for reasonable cause, right? They were playing so many games and they need the rest. It was a very close game and just, you know, unlucky with this penalty. I feel like if not for that, we would have tied that game and I think it would be the best result for us. Next up for Forward Madison FC, a match at home on Saturday at Bree Stevens Field with a great chance to pick up a win against cellar-dwelling Central Valley Fuego FC. The match will kick off at 7 p.m. For even more coverage in all things Forward Madison FC, New Dog Mazine will be releasing their second edition of their print magazine this Friday night at the beautiful Robinho Courtyard on East Washington Avenue from 8 to 10 p.m. Issue 2 includes articles on FMFC's quest for a title and a retrospective on Wisconsin coaching legend and FMFC's assistant coach, Jim Lunder. For WORT... This has been Forward Focus. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Madison Delier. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg and Andrew Schmidt, Grant Peters and Evan Warwick. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nate Wiki helps produce this newscast, and Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Amy Owen. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night. <laughs>